Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of God. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, months, uh, we've been saying that one of the most remarkable things uh, about being a Christian is that you can genuinely change. You can change. And uh, change is always possible in a Christian. If you're not a Christian, change is temporary. Change is a result of mere uh, uh, behavioral modification. But the Apostle Paul, the writer of the book of Ephesians, he says that the fruit of a supernaturally transformed heart The fruit of a supernaturally transformed life is change. You're made new, he says. So new that the ancient Christians were known to be born again. Now, how did that happen? We're going to go through three things today. We're going to recap. We're going to talk about what it means to put off and put on. We're going to talk about what it means to be made new. And then we're going to kind of wrap up with a few case studies around putting off, putting on, and being made new. First, we're going to look at putting off and putting on. And if you were here last week, we really started, we really went into uh, the, the details of this. So I'm going to mix this in uh, with some illustrative examples that the Apostle Paul gives us. And really, because what you see is the first part of this text that we read, verses 17 to 24, is the dynamics of change. And then the verses 25 to 32, the latter part of this text, he actually gives us specific case studies. He gives us specific illustrations and examples. So first, putting off and putting on. Turning away from the old self. What is the old self? Paul's talking about an old way of thinking. 
He's talking about an old way of believing, the old self, the old life. He said, you see, the world, which is the old way, he says, you no longer need to prove yourself. You no longer need to justify yourself. That's how you get a sense of worth. That's how the old way th- is th- thinks, that you need to justify yourself, to prove yourself to get a sense of worth. The old self says, I need the approval of my parents. I need, the, I need the approval of my significant other. I need the approval of my boss, my colleagues, to feel okay about myself. Now look at verse 25. Paul says, put off falsehood and tell the truth. Think about the reasons why we lie. We lie because we don't want people to know who we really are. We don't want people to see underneath the veneer what certain truths say about us. They, those truths actually kill us. But we need the approval of other people. And so it's easier to cover over the truth about ourselves than to actually confront the truth about ourselves. What's the gospel? The first thing you learn about the gospel is that it's a body of truth, that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. And if you haven't come to that reality, the truth of that reality, you'll never experience the good news of the gospel that what? God loves you far more than you could have ever dreamed. If you're feeling the weight of the lie, if you're feeling the weight of guilt, Jesus Christ felt the weight of our lies. He died for us. That's the truth. On the cross, what happened? People are mocking him. They say, if you really are the son of God, come down from there. In other words, what they're saying is what? You can't come down? You're not going to come down? Then you must be a liar. But we're the liars. We're the liars. Jesus Christ died for our lives. We believed our lies, but Jesus died for us. So when you see the cross, what do you see? You see Jesus. Jesus Christ is filled with truth. Never covers over the truth about who he is. Even if that truth would lead him to his death, even if it would kill him, and yet to the end, he never lies, he never hides. Jesus Christ puts off his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, he puts off his righteousness and puts on our sin. That's what we said. And when that truth, when that reality becomes personal to you, there's the validation. There's the approval that you need. You can be real with God. You can run to God. You can be honest with God about your sin because your sense of worth is no longer defined by the need to prove yourself, by the need to justify yourself because you are justified. Jesus Christ died for you. There's the value. There's your approval. You see, you can put off the old. Paul says in verse 24, put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. We said the word righteousness means approval. There's your approval. Created to be holy, that means to be set apart, to be used by God. That means that when you put on the new self that's Christ, there's a union. There's a union between you and Christ. Because Jesus Christ is righteous, now you're righteous. Because Jesus Christ is holy, now you're holy. Jesus Christ put off his righteousness so you would have his righteousness. He put off his holiness on the cross. He became sin. That's what it says. That means he put off his holiness so you could be holy. He put on your sin. That means when you put on the new self, when you put on Jesus, Jesus takes on your sin. You become righteous. That union powers you to tell the truth. You're putting on his righteousness. There is the power to tell the truth. You're turning away from your old thinking. He says that your old thinking is corrupted by the deceit of your desires. 
So you're turning away from your old thinking, your old self. Your old self is corrupted. Why? Because you're deceived. Because we believe the lies of our desires. You want approval. And that desire for approval is so overwhelming. It overwhelms your thinking, overwhelms the core of your thinking. So you believe that telling a lie will get you the approval that you need. That's what you believe, but your new self, to know that you're already accepted by the price that Jesus Christ paid for you, you're accepted by God, then that rational truth powers you to abandon the lie and to tell the truth. That means that's regardless of your needs, regardless of your desires, regardless of your instincts or natural instincts, regardless how you feel about it at any given moment. A lot of times we don't feel like telling the truth, regardless how you feel, regardless of your calculated losses and benefits, you put off the lies and you tell the truth. Think about this. We live in a culture today, we live in a culture that doesn't even want to make promises because if you don't make promises, you're not held accountable to those things. We don't want the accountability of our promises. And that inability to hold to the truth keeps us from what? keeps us from sustaining long-term relationships because the heart of any deep relationship is what? Think about marriage, parenting, all your relationships, they're all based on promises, holding to your promises. If you think about what blocks real friendship, it's trust. Now you have the power to end the lies. Now you have the power to commit to the truth. In verse 22, put off the old self, end the lies. Then he leads to a bridge. In verse 23, he says, you are made new because you see the integrity of Jesus. Jesus Christ is whole. We said that the word integrity comes from the word integer, whole. Jesus Christ is whole. He's always truthful, truthful about your sin, truthful about himself, he never lies, so we can trust Jesus. You can anchor your hopes in Jesus. You can trust Jesus, and he's truthful about what he accomplished for you. He put on your sin and gave you his righteousness. That's personal. You have to preach the gospel to yourself until it becomes personal, until it moves you to cross that bridge. And because the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for you moves you. It shapes you. Now you are set free to turn from the lies. And in verse 24, it says, you're set free to tell the truth. And when you tell the truth, you're created to be like God in that you're approved by God. You were set apart for God. In other words, you are honoring God in an active way. You see that Jesus Christ died to set you free from the power of your lives. And so you cross the bridge and you see what those lies then look at, look like. So on one hand, you're set free to, to turn from your old self. You cross the bridge because you see the integrity of Jesus and what he did to pay for your lack of integrity. And when you see that, you're now able to be set free to tell the truth. You see the beauty of the truth. But on the flip side, you look at the beauty of your truth. You put on the likeness of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Because you're accepted by God in Christ, you now cross over the bridge, you see the corruption of the lies. You see what those lies can do. You see that your old self is being corrupted, how those desires are deceitful. And because Jesus Christ set you free, you now turn away from those lies. It takes a renewed heart. 
It takes a renewed core. That's always the bridge. That's the one thing only God can do. You can put off, you can put on. And whether you start by putting on and then you cross the bridge to put off, or you start by putting off and then you cross the bridge and you put on, the Lord remakes you, recreates you. Verse 26 to 27, it says this about our relationships. The Apostle Paul says, In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? There are many ways to deal with your anger. But the reality is that anger in and of itself is not sin. Because the Bible depicts God as an angry God. God himself is filled with anger. But how does he deal with that anger? On one hand, here's how we deal with our anger. We can suppress our anger. We bury our anger. We write people off. We can write a person off, and we can walk away from our anger because there's a sense of superiority in us. But what happens? At some point, you explode in anger. You take that anger. That anger has to go somewhere. If you suppress it, if you bury it, it has to go somewhere. It doesn't just go away. And secondly, if you merely suppress it, because you haven't dealt with that anger, because it hasn't been forgiven, the author of Hebrews says, you will harbor a root of bitterness. And so the author of Hebrews says, beware, be careful about your anger. Now, another way that we deal with it is we retaliate. We attack other people, we defend ourselves, and we can justify both to the degree that we feel we've been wronged, right? So what do we do? We want to ruin that other person. We think of just a list of things that we could do, that we could say to ruin that person. What you're doing is, you know, Jesus says, don't murder But if you hate somebody, you've already committed murder in your heart. Why? Because if you hate somebody and you think of a list of things that you could do to that person, and we can do lots of things without murdering somebody, but what we're really doing is we're murdering their reputations. That's what gossip is. When you talk about somebody, when you throw somebody under the bus, so to speak, what you're doing is that phrase, you're murdering that person's character. You see? You want to pay them back. Why? Because in a sense, when somebody, anyone here who's been hurt by anyone, what happens is you've incurred an an emotional debt. That person owes you. That person has incurred a debt, a spiritual debt. And so you fill your heart, you fill your mind with anger, and you justify it. Now, I'm going to tell you two stories. When I was in college, that was the first story. When I was in t- college, there was one of my roommates broke up with his girlfriend. And I imagine the girlfriend is saying, I'm going to show you. I will show you. You know what she did? She showed up at my roommate's lab. It's where he was working. And uh, she flew out to Boston, had taken a bottle of pills. And she showed up to, this is going to be a little bit like crass or graphic, I guess. She showed up to his lab and basically threw blood up all over his lab room. And so it caused a huge scene. My roommate was traumatized. They rushed her to the ER, right, pumped her stomach. She's saying, I'll show you. And she did. And she did show him. It ruined her life, ruined his head for at least a year. He lived with guilt and fear. That's a personal example. Right? We think of ways that we're going to show that person. Now, the second thing we do, I'm going to give you a, a, probably a more uh, universal example. If you've ever read Hamlet, what's the story, the premise of William Shakespeare's Hamlet? You have Claudius. Claudius murdered Hamlet's father and married Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, if you've ever read it. 
And so the entire book, most of the book, Hamlet is sitting there and he's waiting. He's waiting. He's plotting revenge. He imagines what revenge will look like. In fact, his famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, is him waiting and watching as Claudius is praying in guilt. And he's just plotting the things that he could do. And he says, do I just kill myself? To be or not to be? That's how angry he is. Or do I run over and do I kill him? What happens over the course of time because he stalls and he waits and because he can't forgive? You see, the deaths, one after another. There's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern who are plotting against him. They're dead. His girlfriend, Ophelia, dead. His girlfriend's father, Polonius, dies. Right? One by one. Everyone around Hamlet, the story is built up and set up in a way that one by one, everybody starts to pass away until Hamlet himself dies. And it's William Shakespeare's way way of telling you that his point is that evil, anger, your sin, corrupts you and everyone around you until what? Until it has ruined everybody, until everyone is dead. How do you deal then with the dead? People often in, in the church you know, you'll hear this uh, growing up. Just forgive. Just let it go. Just, just forgive. And it doesn't sound like that. Well, they, it's serious, but they'll tell you at the end of the day just to forgive the person. Just let it go. But how do you do that? Because anyone who's ever really been hurt by somebody knows you can't just forgive. You can't just let it go. Why can't God just forgive, for that matter, in his anger? Why can't he just let it go? Because the bigger the hurt that you've experienced in your life, the more difficult it is to forgive that person. Now look. The Bible says God is an angry God. What does that mean? It means he's constantly angry. Why? If you've been betrayed, you understand. He's been betrayed. He's been grieved. God has been hurt. This is why you know that anger in and of itself is not sin. Anger is a characteristic of God. And if you're angry, it's because you have been made in the image of God. Anger in and of itself is not bad because, because there's anger, you know. Anger tells you that you know the difference between good and bad. You know the difference between evil and righteousness. You know the difference between justice and injustice. Anger in and of itself is not bad. We're willing to attack wrongdoing. We're willing to defend justice. Anger means you have a sense of justice. But think about this. What it means is when you're angry, you're like God. Does a Macintosh get angry? Why not? Because a Mac, a Mac isn't human. It's not created in the image of God. And so you can suppress it. You can walk away from it. To not Act like you're angry is actually to be subhuman, to be less human. You're more like a computer. You're more like an animal. But think about this. The things that we think that will increase our joy and freedom and, and potential will actually decrease our joy and freedom and potential when you suppress your anger, when you're actually, you're becoming less of a human being. It will, and it will eventually lead to less joy, less freedom, less potential, less power in your life. The problem is that if you're honest, most of us have a disproportionate sense of justice because we have a selfish view of evil. 
The author of Romans is also the Apostle Paul. And Paul says that the wrath of God has been revealed. God is angry. And yet, how does God demonstrate his anger? What does he do? Does he, does he plot to ruin his people in his anger? He says, I'm so grieved. I'm now going to plot to destroy these people, to ruin these people. No. He plans to save his people. He plans to redeem. He makes a way. He designs a way to redeem his people by taking on their sin, by taking on our sin. Why? Because somebody has to pay. Somebody, there's an emotional and spiritual debt that has been incurred. Somebody has to pay that price. And if you've ever been betrayed, you understand that either they pay the price because if they don't pay the price, you will pay the price. Either they will suffer until you are satisfied that the debt has been paid or you will pay it down yourself by forgiving them, by absorbing the pain and the grief and the hurt of that betrayal, by forgiving them. When you forgive, even though it hurts you, even though it just feels like it's, gonna, it's just tearing you apart because you want them to know, you, want, you just want to punish these people. You just want to punish that person. It's going to cost you, and it will. When you forgive somebody, it does cost you. If you forgive somebody, it will hurt. But you know what happens when you actually forgive somebody? The pain actually does start to go away. You think that if you punish somebody, you'll feel better, and you will. That's why it's so alluring to inflict uh, revenge to pay somebody back. It feels good for a little while, but the anger itself does not go away. It actually grows. The next time it happens, does that anger go away? No. That pain all comes back. It compounds. When you forgive somebody, it hurts for a little while because there's a sense of shame in being hurt. There's a sense of uh, injustice and oppression that you can't get over in the beginning. But when you absorb that sin, when you absorb that pain, whether or not the other person acknowledges that they've sinned against you, when you absorb it, what happens is it actually starts to go away. It actually, you're actually paying the debt down, and it, it actually starts to go away. So what happens is what you thought was going to kill you, what you thought was going to lower your joy and freedom and peace and power actually starts to heal you and increase your joy and freedom and power, and peace. And Jesus made a way for us to be forgiven. On the cross, he puts on our sin. You know what that means? When he takes on our sin, he puts on the wrath of God. It's got to go somewhere. Somebody has to pay. And to the proportion of the hurt, somebody must pay to that degree. Jesus says, I will pay. And on the cross, to take on our sin is to receive the wrath of God in totality. And so not only did Jesus experience betrayal, he also takes the blame of our betrayal and he puts on the punishment and the wrath that we deserved. So in a sense, Jesus suffers three times for our sin. That's disproportionate. That's unjust. That's, it's remarkable, but it's disproportionate. It's oppressive. It's unjust. And when Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, what's he saying? Don't rest. Because of that, when, you, when that becomes personal, when the gospel becomes personal to you, 
When you see that Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate injustice, the ultimate disproportionate anger and wrath that he never deserved because he took on what we deserve, when you experience that, then, then you can have the power to not rest. When it says don't let the sun go down on, on your anger, what Paul's saying is don't rest until you can actively work, whether it's internally working it out, actively work to kill the suppression. To suppress it is not to deal with your anger. To walk away from the person, to write off the person, to retaliate and attack that person, even behind their back, or to defend yourself, or to do something to make yourself feel justified, all those ways. He says, that's not dealing with your anger. You're still making that person pay. When you write a person off, what you're saying is, I'm, I'm higher than you. I'm done with you. You're lower than me. I don't need this. That's what you're saying. You're still making the person pay. You see? Paul says, don't rest until you are able to actively work to kill those impulses. And because of the gospel, you can put off the old self. That's what Paul's saying. The old self suppresses. The old self harbors a root of bitterness. The old self, that root of bitterness starts to twist you. You ever see roots and what they do? It starts to twist the tree until it grows into an oak of sin, an oak of anger and pride, and it ruins you. You know, it's a lot easier to chop down, to cut out a root, to unweed something, than wait till it turns into a tree and uproot the tree, you see. The old self attacks your neighbor, and defends itself when Jesus let himself be attacked and defended his neighbor. That's why the Bible calls Jesus our advocate. In the Greek, that word means he's our defense, like a defense attorney. That's what he is. You put off the attack. What do you put on when you're angry? If you put off the attack, you can't just put it off. You got to put on the righteousness of Christ. You receive the righteousness of Christ. What does it mean to put on? That means to do whatever you can because you have the power to do that. The righteousness of Christ has been transferred. We call that imputation. It's a theological term on the cross that when Jesus died, your guilt was transferred to Christ. His righteousness was transferred to you. That means that now you can do whatever you can to put yourself in a position to reconcile with that person. On one hand, it means you've got to absorb the sin. You have the power to do that. You can absorb the hurt. Now you have a supernatural ability to do that, and you can put on love. All of a sudden, when you're able to do that, it takes a while. To the degree you've been hurt, it's going to take a while. But when you do that, after a while, compassion starts to return. You're able to understand again. You know what it means to understand? Literally, to stand under a person and hold them up. You're able to understand that person again. You put on love. You're paying the price. You're not suppressing it. You're not burying that person, your anger. We tend to forgive ourselves way easier and focus on other people's sin when really what we should be doing is forgiving others and focusing on our own sin. That's what we should be doing. By the way, that's why we gossip. When you gossip, you're saying, I can't believe they did that because I would never do that. I'm higher than them. I'm above them. I don't care if you're gossiping with your spouse. I don't care if you're gossiping with your best friends in private. I don't care if you're gossiping among family. God is present, and he knows. He sees. Put off the vindictiveness. 
Put off the gossip. Put on that desire to reconcile by not letting the sun go down on your anger. What's the bridge? We've got to go back to the bridge again, right? So if you're going to put off and it's putting on, but the bridge is you're made new by looking at the price that Jesus paid to forgive you. What it cost Jesus for God to forgive you. What it cost Jesus for God to say, come, let us reason together to reconcile with you. That's how you get over the superiority. That's how you get over the attacking of others. That's how you get over the self-defense. That's how you get over the bitterness. You can forgive until the cross of Jesus becomes real to you, until you see Jesus on the cross bleeding for you, dying for you, until you are forgiven, until he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Until he says, it is finished. Until you see Jesus bleeding and dying, until you are forgiven, until that truth, that reality melts your heart to the point where you are thankful, you will not be able to cross that bridge and put on or put off. Verses 25 to 32, they were written by Paul as examples. Evidently, there were things that were going on in the church in Ephesus. There, so all of the, all the, we talk about the meaning of the church all of the practical application of putting on, putting off, and being made new. It's demonstrated in the context of community. Why? Because people lied in the church. That's not surprising to you, right? People lied in the church. People stole in the church. People gossiped in the church. People tore other people down. There was unwholesome talk in the church. People sought revenge against one another in the church. People were angry at others. They weren't forgiving in the church. That's us. Put off, put on. That's the dynamic. Help people put off, put on. Help people to work that dynamic out. If you're a good friend, you will help your friend to put off and put on. You will help. If they're not renewed, you can assess, okay, clearly they're not renewed. Pray for them. Pray with them to put off, put on, and be renewed. That's the second point. We're going to get into the second point is to be made new. Paul says, be made new. Be renewed in the attitude of your mind. What does that mean, to be made new in the attitude of your mind? The actual Greek there is the the core of your heart, the core of your mind. In other words, let the gospel shape what's at the core of your life. The actual phrase that Paul's referring to, he says, let the gospel shape, let the gospel renew the dreams, the imaginations of your mind or your heart. In Jesus, there's this unique love that you need and this unique love that you've received. And so the gospel can address all the pathologies in your heart. Your heart is constantly coming up with things that you need. Your heart is constantly saying, I need this, and you need that, and that's why you need to earn it. That's why you need to prove yourself. Your heart is constantly, John Calvin says, your heart is a factory that constantly brings up and creates things that you need, perceived needs to make yourself feel that you are okay. Let the gospel renew you in the attitude of your mind, the imagination of your heart. That's what it's really saying in the Greek there. And what that means is that we need the gospel to shape your dreams. We need the gospel to shape your loves and your life. What your mind is longing for at any given moment. 
because of what your heart desires and how that shapes you. Because if you go back to verses 17 to 24, which is the pretext, he says, your desires corrupt you because they deceive you. They lie to you. And that lie, if you buy into the lie, you are corrupted by those lies. And you are ruined. It leads to a tremendous ignorance and a hardening of heart and then a darkening in your understanding. That's what, that's what 17 to 24 says, right? So we need the gospel to shape then what's at the core so that what comes out as fruit, how your dreams play out, what you pursue is being shaped supernaturally by the gospel. What does that mean, to be made new in the attitude of your mind? If your doctor tells you you cannot eat steak anymore, steak is good, right? We love steak. If your doctor says, listen, if you have another steak, every time you have another steak, you are inviting a heart attack that can kill you, a massive heart attack that can kill you. You cannot eat steak because you have massive heart problems. You can either look at that steak and you can dream about how good that steak tastes and how good that steak will feel in your mouth and the richness of that steak, how it'll feel when you're, when you're chewing on it, the juices. The lie is not that the steak is good. The steak is good, right? The lie is that the goodness of that steak is more urgent to you than the importance of your health. And when the importance, when reality is that the importance of your health is more important than the urgency of that steak. Or you can imagine what? One, what will happen to you if you eat it? Right? What will happen to you if you do take that risk? It's a heart attack. That's real reality. It's coming to grips with real reality, the truth that's entering into the corruption of your desires. Or two, you can imagine a life if you do obey the doctor. You will have longevity. You will have health. You will have another day to play with your children. You will have another day to laugh with your spouse. You will have another day surrounded by people that you love. You have to imagine these things. You have to dream out these things. And then you put on and you put off. You have to imagine a life without pride. Imagine a life without vengefulness. Imagine a life where you can actually just own up to the truth of who you are. Imagine a life without lying. Imagine a life without gossip in your life, being gossiped about or gossiping about other people. Put those things off. Imagine a life, if you don't buy into those lies that corrupt, that deceive you and corrupt you. Imagine a life, verse 25, of truthfulness and humility. Imagine a life in verse 26 to 27, uh, a life where your anger has died down and you have a conciliatory heart. Let your mind depict itself. That's what it means to be transformed, to be renewed in the attitude of your mind. Paul says you need that. When that happens, when the Spirit of God opens you up to see, you may feel like you're giving up certain freedoms. And what you don't realize is that you're opening yourself up to a whole new world of freedoms, you see. Lastly, some case studies, some quick ones. Right? How do you apply this just in regular life? Let's take rest, for example. Before, 
I mean, we're heading to the holidays, so this kind of helps, right? Uh, we can actually look at this in real time. Before we rested, because we just like the sensation, the feeling of rest. You worked for yourself, so why not rest for yourself? But a Christian knows that you've been built with a purpose. There's a sense of responsibility about yourself for the kingdom of God. So you rest because you need to be a good steward of your soul. You know you have to be a good steward of your soul and your mind, and that's why we do all our practical disciplines, right? That's why we do that. We want to nurture the soul. We want to shape the soul. We want to shepherd our soul. In a sense, you're kind of pastoring yourself. We know that we need to do that with our hearts because if you don't, you start to believe the lies. It's very easy to open yourself up to the lies. But if you're doing that with your heart, if you're doing that with your soul, if you're doing that with your mind, surely you would want to do that with your body. Your body, to be a good steward over your body so that it could be used by God well. Before you worked all the time. Now you can rest because not work, you're not working for yourself. You're not working to prove something so that you feel justified or approvable, acceptable. You're already accepted. You're already approved. God has proven it on the cross. Every time you look at the cross, Jesus Christ died for you. He labored on the cross for you so that you can enter the rest of God. That means the end of working to prove yourself, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says. And so you rest, and you rest appropriately. See, if you rest when you should be working or working when you should be resting, you come to the reality, the realization that what? You are hurting yourself. That is not a good steward over your body. And so you want to restore your mind. You want to restore your body. You rest because you are liberated from your work. You are free from your work. There is the freedom. There is the peace. You're not a slave anymore to your work. Even the way you rest will change. Before it was all self-indulgence, right? Now you're going to look for ways to rest in a way that balances a restoration of your mind and your body, your soul and your body, you see. I'm going to give you another case study. Let's take a look at our singlehood, singleness. Before, there are people in this room where being single, it brings them to despair. When they think about their singleness, it depresses them. And so they're just desperate for a relationship. Or they're despondent because they're not in a relationship. So what does it mean to put off here? To put off is what? I refuse to let loneliness and singleness lead me to a period, a state, a condition of self-pity and bitterness. I'm no longer going to uh, indulge those feelings of loneliness. I'm no, no longer going to indulge the feeling of being single. In a way that, I, that that is what I identify myself as, just a single person, a lonely person. I'm not going to indulge the self-pity. I'm not going to indulge the self-loathing or the bitterness. I'm going to put it off. And so I'm not going to engage in things that put me at risk for despair. Of course, there are people out there, there are some people who love being single. They love the freedom of being single. They love the conquests of being single. So to put off is what? I'm going to refuse to indulge the sinfulness in those things. What do you put on? What does it mean to obey then? What does it mean to put on here? You're going to say to yourself, now 
I have unique opportunities to serve God in ways that married people cannot. They do not and they cannot. So I'm going to commit to rich friendships. I'm going to commit to building other people up around me. I'm going to commit to loving others, to serving others, service in the church, service in my community. I'm going to commit to growth in my character in ways that a married person is distracted, cannot grow at the same pace or rate. I'm going to commit to growing in character, growing in understanding my values. That's true freedom because I'm living now as I've been designed, as I've been created. I'm the bridegroom of Christ. I've been married into Christ first. That's the only way you're going to be a good spouse anyway is you first become a bride to Christ. That is the church. When you do that, when you see yourself, you have all the love and the approval and the acceptance that you need. When you have that, now you can grow in character. Not because you need, want somebody else's affection, but because you have the great affection. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful one, loves you deeply. He says, I will die for you. There's a this, there's this story, uh, I think I've told this several times, uh, about this woman in Atlantic City who entered into a pastor's convention, but the thing is, she's a prostitute. And she entered into this pastoral convention, and she hung around these pastors all weekend. This is a true story. And uh, the final day is a day where, because it's a pastoral convention, people are able to come up, pastors are able to come up and share some stories, things that they've learned. And it's this huge convention. Thousands of pastors have gathered here. To the horror of people, this woman walks up to the stage, this prostitute. And everyone is kind of like cringing, embracing themselves. She gets up and she says, you know, last night I had a dream. I had a dream that I was, that all of you were there and I was dressed in white. And there in the middle of the circle of all of you, Jesus is there and everyone was dancing there was music playing and Jesus walks up to me and he says will you be willing to dance will you dance with me and there in front of all of you I'm dancing with Jesus and while we're dancing all of you were cringing all of you are gasping all of you are sighing and shaking your heads but Jesus leans over and whispers into my ear I'm crazy about you that is the assurance. That is the approval. There is the validation that you need to power you, to put off the self-loathing, to put off the bitterness. Now you have unique opportunities to serve God because you know that when Jesus looks at you, he can say, I'm crazy about you. Every time you look at the cross, to the point of death, you only die for the things you value most. So I could die for that. I'm willing to die for this. That there's the freedom. You're living as you've been created. What you're created for. To love God and to be loved by God. You're living as you're designed. When you put on what you're saying is, I will actively pursue opportunities to live, to do things practically for God. What's the bridge? What's the bridge there? You're going to pray, I will resolve to not go into self-pity. That's putting off. But Lord, you promised to work in me. And there are days I just feel like crap. 
I just feel crappy here. Will you take away my self-pity? Will you give me the strength? Will you give me the power to live for you? That's literally the bridge. Will you renew me in the attitude of my mind? That's the bridge. That's going to enable you to put off the despair, cross the bridge, asking for strength to put on submission to the Lord, trusting in Jesus, meditating on the wisdom of God. When you're able to do that, even if your mind hasn't been renewed, just keep praying, just keep trusting for the Lord to renew your mind. If you keep imagining that, you know, marriage is the only way you're going to be happy, right? Your mind, that's the old self. That's the lie. The marriage is the only way you're ever going to be happy. You're always going to be sad. And you know what happens? Even if you end up getting married, there will be so many disappointments in your life. You will be sad. There is a self-pity. There is a self-loathing. But when you meditate on the wisdom of God, the timing, you know, God is never late. When you trust that, God is never late. That's not just some saying. There's scripture everywhere to justify and show you that God is never late. There goes away the self-pity. Are you angry? Unforgiving? Struggling with forgiving someone? Meditate on God's justice. Not just his forgiveness of you, but his justice. If you imagine your justice, what's going to happen? You're never going to heal. Trust me. I've been betrayed. I've tried. But God is so gracious. God is so good. God is so faithful. Imagine his justice. That's going to take you to the cross. 1 John chapter 1, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and nice to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Is that what he says? No. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and kind to forgive you of your sins and purify us from all unrighteousness? No. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just because he has already poured out his wrath on Christ. The debt has been paid. It would be unjust for God to pour it out on one. Say that the debt has been paid and then pour it out again. That is not in his character to do that. So if you trust that the wrath of God has been appeased and are on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm paying the debt. The wrath of God is being poured out on me. And now you are satisfied because every drop, every last drop of the wrath of God has been taken in. That old hymn, remind you once in a while, right? That old hymn that we don't sing because the, lyric, the music is bad, but the words are so good that Jesus Christ drank the dregs of God's wrath. That's the dregs are, you know, when you're drinking tea, the little particles that are just sitting there have still a little ounce of power in there that you can keep pouring water until it all gets kind of, se- it all gets soaked in, right, by the water. You can drink it. And it says Jesus Christ drank the dregs of God's wrath. Down to the end, he sucked out the juices of God's wrath until there was no more power, you see. If you trust that, God is faithful and just. Because the justice has been poured out on Christ, because the debt has been paid, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You understand that? 
you're in a place where you say, Pastor, but I'm not yet renewed. I don't, I'm not there yet. Well, then confess that you're not there yet. Confess you need, you need to get there. You haven't crossed that bridge. Confess that. You can go to him. He died for you. So you can go to him. Confess your need for renewal. Make it a discipline to confess that need for renewal until the cloud and the fog and the confusion rolls away and the sun starts to peek through. And if you've been praying and you've been meditating on God's justice and his wisdom and his timing, you'll be ready. You'll be ready. And what happens is then the healing will eventually start to settle in. The power will eventually settle in. Create an altar in yourself for the renewal of the spirit of your mind. What does that mean? Resolve to say, I will meditate on God's wisdom. I will meditate on God's justice. I will meditate on God's character. Whatever part of that character that has been imputed and transferred to you, we meditate on what the other person owes us. That's the problem. You think you're still the debt collector. So you think you have power over this person, and you don't. Not when you recognize the debt that you owe and the price that Jesus paid for you. Let that truth, that reality govern your mind and your heart. And you will have a a vivid grasp of the goodness of God. It's going to give you new eyes. Eyes determine what's beautiful. Your eyes. The gospel is the only thing that's going to help you make sense of verses 25 through 32, those practical cases that Paul's talking about. Put off falsehood. You're going to put off falsehood, verse 25, right? Speak truthfully. That's what you're going to put on. Verse 26, you're going to put off stewing in anger, dreaming of vengeance. You're going to put on peace, conciliatory heart. Verse 28, put off stealing, right? Then he says, put on honest labor, honest work with your hands. Verse 29, put off gossip, destructive talk. Put on only what is helpful for you, helpful for the church. Verses 30 to 32, put off bitterness and rage and brawling and slander. And he doesn't say malice. He says every form of malice. Every one of us has different forms of malice that we subtly practice because we think we can get away with it. God sees all of it. And he says, put it off. Put it off. That's the old self. You're buying into the lie. Put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness. You see, the kindness sets in when you forgive. The compassion starts to settle in when you forgive. And it reminds us just as God forgave you. He basically always brings us back to the gospel. He says in every one of these things, practice the gospel. Think about the gospel. What does it actually mean when we say you've got to preach the gospel to yourself? In other words, bring everything back to the gospel. Every time you change, that's the only way you can just get away from moral restraint. That is one way to do it, moral restraint. He says, no, bring it back to the gospel. That's not going to last. So when you look to Jesus, when you look at the cross, what do you see? Jesus to the end spoke truth. Jesus to the end died to end the war between God and man. He did not let the sun go down in his anger. You see? It's set on him. He took care of it once and for all. And when he fulfilled his mission, after honest labor, here's Jesus on the cross, laboring and working and sweating and groaning. And everyone's mocking him for this futile work that he was doing, and yet it was honest for him. 
Not a single cheat. Not a single ounce of cutting corners. And he says, at the end, at the end of all the absorption of the sin, paying it all down to the end, every last drop of blood, he says, it is finished. You know what that means in, Gre- in the Greek? The debt is paid. Not once did he gossip. Not once did he throw people. In fact, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He was understanding to the end on the cross, unjustifiably, unjustly dying for other sins, yet not one complaint to the end. He says, you, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's what he says. Father, forgive them. They They know not what they do. To the end, he died forgiving, and yet he cries out, I've been forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Atoning for our sin. And so he grieved the Father, grieved the Spirit of God. Why? So that we could be sealed for redemption. Friends, the church has been marked throughout history with a character of generosity, with character of great worship, wonderful programs over, over the years. But it should be marked with love. It should be marked with love in a way that powers all those things. That's my prayer for Metro. That's my prayer for you. We're going to be embarking over the next year in planting another site. What's the point of planting all these sites in Philadelphia? We should have the vision that every neighborhood in Philadelphia would want a church in its corner. There are, Philadelphia boasts the most churches per capita, you know that, in the city. And yet those churches are dying out. A lot of them are old, 30 people or less, less than the average size of a church in America. The average size of a church in America is 30 people. They're all dying out. They're relics. The church needs to stand to be marked by more than just generosity, not less. More than great worship, not less. More than wonderful programs, not less. It's got to be marked with a love that is powered by the love that it's experienced in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer because if you do that, what church in America, what, what neighborhood in America will not want a church on its corner? Hear those sirens? It's perfect. That's great background music for the calling of Christ. That's why I love being here in the city. It's not distracting. It's a wonderful thing. Cross the bridge. Put off. Put on Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray.